0: following sermon audio is from love city church cincinnati more audio and information about love city church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org if you would please turn with me to hebrews chapter 7 we're going to be in verses 11 through 28 last week we looked at the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7 and discussed this mysterious priest king named Melchizedek. And he's mentioned in just a few verses of Genesis 14, and also then in Psalm 110, and then also here in Hebrews 7. And and Melchizedek is kind of a linchpin of this, this continued argument that the writer of Hebrews is making about the superiority of Christ as high priest over the Levitical system of high priests. And so this week will definitely build on last week. So if you missed last week, it might be a little hard to keep up as we follow the author's argument. I'm going to do my best to catch you up, but you know, the author's argument last week is is Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and, and he begins to unpack why his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood descended. From Aaron, all right? And I can't re preach all of last week, okay? <laughs> or else, you know, we'd be here a while. Uh, but to give you a quick summary, I enlisted the help of uh, what I would say is in equal parts uh, intriguing, uh, but also potentially terrifying technology. Uh, who has heard of ChatGPT? Let me see your hands if you have heard that thing. Chat, really? Two of you. Do you guys just not like raising your hands or seriously, that's how many of you have heard of chat GPT? Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to teach them something. (laughs) Uh, So who who thought I would be the one that's like hip on the front edge of technology stuff? This is a shock. I mean, this is, I don't know if this is the Holy Spirit or something else, but we'll sort that out later. So, so ChatGPT—it's an artificial intelligence platform that answers inquiries in a conversational matter, uh, manner. And it's 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 incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of kind of uh, questions about what this is going to mean for like the economy broadly, a lot of people's jobs because it's it's doing things like um, writing code better than humans, and it can. You, know, you can give it a little bit of input, like a question, and it'll, it'll, it'll write the equivalent of like a newspaper article in about 30 seconds, and it's probably as good or sometimes better than what a human would do. So people are, some people are freaked out about it. You know, whatever. That's not, I didn't go there for all that. Uh, but what I did go is... I, so I got on the thing, and <clears throat> I asked it if it could write a rap about Melchizedek. <laughs> okay? And I was half expecting... Okay, I was half expecting that question to be too obscure of a subject for this thing to know how to answer. Right? I mean, who, who would think that this would have any? This artificial intelligence thing would have anything to say about Melchizedek? I was wrong. I was very wrong. Okay. So, uh, and this is amazing, man, because this thing, it it started typing in about ten seconds, and it had this whole thing typed out in thirty seconds. All right. And so it's, it's much more powerful than just, like, searching Google. That's, it's, it's different than that. This is, this is AI, right? And again, it's, you know, I, I've seen the Terminator, so I know why everyone's worried. Um, and I'm not saying I'm not, but just, you know, what, what am I going to do about it, right? Like, my trust is in Christ, so whatever. If, if, if we have to fight robots later, whatever, you know? I mean, I'm into it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so it, it, wrote this, it wrote this thing in 30 seconds. I will say, I've tweaked it a little bit because some parts were a little bit clunky. I think the thing's still learning, which again, is a terrifying idea. Uh, But but this, here's what I can tell you. What I'm about to read you is 90%, this is this artificial intelligence original content that it gave me on the spot as soon as I said, can you write me a rap about Melchizedek? And it even comes back and it's like, sure, I can do that, here you go. And it, yo, it gave me, three verses in a chorus, just like that. Okay. So here's, here's what we got. Uh, Where's Greg? Greg, are you in here? Bro, if I would have had more time, I should have sent this to you and had you lay me a beat under it. We may still do that. All right. All right. You got me. Okay. All right. Here we go. This, so this, look, if you don't like this, the AI wrote it. Okay. But if you do like it, I tweaked it a little bit. So I don't know, you know what I mean? All right, here we go. Listen up, y'all, I got a story to tell about a king known as Melchizedek. So, well, he ruled in Salem back in ancient days. Righteousness and peace were his major ways. Here's the chorus. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melchizedek, king of peace. He's a high priest like none before. His order superior, that's for sure. All right, so we put that three times in between the verses. That's the chorus, all right? So here, it keeps going. He came out to meet Abraham when he returned, a victory in battle and spoils he had earned. He gave him bread and wine, only the best. By this priest and king, Abraham was blessed. (laughs) If I was really rapping, I'd do the chorus again. Here's the next verse, all right? In Hebrews, it's written plain to see. Melchizedek's order is the key to a better covenant, a new law. With Jesus, our high priest, will never fall. Oh, 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 oh. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of peace. He's a high priest like none before. His order's superior, that's for sure. All right. Yeah, I probably, I put a little, little bit of extra on there at the end, all right? Okay, so. That's a little poetic summary of who Melchizedek is. So you're basically caught up from last week, all right? Now, this week, <laughs> I'm gonna send you that, Greg, all right? You got me? All right. We're gonna do something. Now, this week, the author is going to expound on why people should not cling to the old forms of the priesthood established by the law of Moses and should embrace uh, the not only superior but perfect, keyword, perfect priesthood of Jesus in the order. Of Melchizedek. Okay, so let's read seven eleven through twenty eight. I know it's gonna be <clears throat> a little bit hard to track with because it is. But I promise we're gonna we're gonna work through it together, and I'm I'm real excited to bust into this with you. Okay, so Hebrews is uh, Hebrews chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse eleven. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That right there is the quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, okay? A messianic psalm. And and this, this quote in Psalm 110 is really a key pivot point of the author's entire argument here in this section, okay? So, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath... For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, "The Lord has sworn, sworn, and will not change his mind." You are a priest forever. So much more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Praise God for his word. Okay. Now, remember the timeline. Melchizedek pops up on the scene, Genesis 14, comes out, meets Abraham after the battle, right? So this is far before this the time of the the priesthood of Aaron, the giving of the law, the Levitical priesthood, all right? And And then what he just said there is but this oath came later, the oath comes in the Psalms written by King David, right? So you got Abraham in Genesis, you got Egypt, you got the wilderness, and then, and then later you've got David, right? So this is the succession. <clears throat> and so David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in writing Psalm 110, referenced, it's the only other reference, he points back to this, ish, this, this, um, this time where Melchizedek shows up And it's called A Priest and a King, uh, which we're going to talk about. I know we did last week. We're going to talk a little bit more about why that's unusual. Okay, so let's look back at verse 11. We're going to work our way through this, okay? Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Okay, so this is kind of a summary of the basic premise he's launching into. If the Levitical priesthood was perfect, okay, and therefore final, because if, 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 if it was the final iteration and the perfect iteration of the priesthood, then the, the author's question is, why is this priestly order of Melchizedek mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 4 tied to all of the rest that's said about this, this Messiah that we're looking forward to, right? What, why, why would that ever come up if... And, and, and what is he doing? Again, he's trying to help those who had become believers in Jesus, but were now tempted to either in part or in whole retreat back to the Old Testament system of the priesthood and sacrifices. And so he's really what he's saying here is, guys, I, I get the draw to that. I understand why you, you, you might be thinking that way, but <clears throat> here's the first thing I'm asking you. what What is David talking about? Why is he mentioning Melchizedek tied to this Messiah that's coming if, if it doesn't have anything to do with there needing to be a... a upgrade to the priesthood. So he's just starting his premise in verse 11, okay? Now let's look at verses 12 through 14, and we're going to be camped here for a good minute, okay? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Why? Well, if the priesthood's is going to, because God's law under, under Moses was that Priests came out of the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. So, if there's going to be a change of priesthood, the law is going to have to change. That's all he's saying, okay? For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests, okay? So, we talked about this last week. This is part of the problem. We see the problem here. It's brought up again, it's dealt with from a slightly different angle and, and maybe with more detail, okay? So let's just make sure we we all understand really what's going on here, all right? God set aside the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, of the tribe of Levi to serve as priests, all right? How did that work? Priests were not elected. Their designation was hereditary. You were priest based on who your lineage was, okay? That's how it happened. There wasn't a popularity contest. There was no... um, There was no character qualifications. Basically, if you were the son of the right person ahead of you in the generational line, then you were born into the priesthood. All right? Uh, All priests had to be Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. But the ones who weren't helped with the care of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Okay? And because of this special designation where God said, okay, I'm, I'm taking... Um, Instead of the firstborn of everyone, the Levites are mine. They're going to serve as priests for me. All right. And because of that, as as the people of God came into the promised land, all the rest of the tribes, that land of the promised land was divided among them. They were all given an inheritance of that land. The Levites did not receive a portion of the land like the others. They were meant to survive from the tithes and offerings of the other tribes so that they could focus on this special service to God. Also noteworthy, the Levites were exempt from serving in Israel's army, okay? So if the Philistines popped up, or the Amalekites popped up, or somebody comes up, you know, rattling sabers, ready to want to fight, all the rest of the tribes are expected to send some people to, to, let's get down, right? The Levites were not. They were set aside for this special purpose unto God. So that's the Levites and the priests, but then there was the high priest. Aaron was the first high priest, the brother of Moses. And then the eldest surviving son at the time each high priest died then took the position, all right? So the high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So the tabernacle, it had these dividers, right? There was an outer court, and then there was this this place that was behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant sat. This was known as the Holy of Holies, all right? And only the high priest could could go in there uh, one time a year, okay, on the Day of Atonement, and they would sprinkle sacrificial blood on the altar for the forgiveness of the sins for the people, all right? There were also daily sacrifices. There were other things going on. There was this this special day once a year, the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest uh, could go in there. The high priest had different garments, right? He wore a breastplate with all these gems that was designed by God told Moses, this is exactly how I want this made. And, And the same was true for the tabernacle and all of that, right? And so I know a lot of you reading through Genesis, Exodus, you get to Leviticus, and it's all about measurements and certain uh, materials to be used for the tabernacle and all that. It, and, and, and you can start to like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is hard to like understand why this matters. But it does matter, okay? Because there's so much going on there. And, and that, that earthly tabernacle, was God was giving those specific instructions because it was meant to mirror and reflect the, what's going on in heaven, okay? The throne room of God in heaven. And so All of that is is much more important than it probably appears to our modern eyes and ears sometimes, okay? So I want to also make sure you know the reason you hear this called the Levitical priesthood is not because they were descended from Levi. That could be confusing. It's because the commands outlining who the priest could be and how they would function, they are primarily found in Leviticus. So that's why it's the Levitical priesthood, all right? So, why is Jesus, as high priest, such a shocking idea? It probably isn't to us at first, because again, most of us weren't born in or or so steeped in an understanding of Torah and and the law. But it's because he descended from the tribe of Judah. The writer said that, right? And that poses a problem, because God told Moses, Aaron, and his descendants of the tribe of Levi, those are my priests. So now you're coming along saying, Jesus, of the tribe of Judah is the high priest, that's, to them, that doesn't compute. It's like, hold on, God said you can't do that. That's what, that's what the discussion is about, the changing of the law and all of that, all right? But here's a here's a question, and this, this leads us into the depth of, of where we're headed today, and I hope you didn't show up today thinking, you know, we were just going to have a nice little inspirational sermon. I hope you showed up ready to work today, because we <laughs> we're in Hebrews 7, okay? So <laughs> this is not going to be like here's your three points and a take-home principle. Have fun. Like, this ain't that kind of sermon. This ain't that kind of text. Um, you're going to have to work with me today, but here's a question. All right, so Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. Who else of prominence was descended from the tribe of Judah? Anyone take a crack at it? He was a king. David. David was descended of the tribe of Judah. Why does that matter? Well, it was from David's line then, once God established a covenant with David, it was now from his line that the kings were going to come. So God said to Moses, Aaron, the priests are coming through him. Some time passes, and then David comes in. God says, I'm, I'm gonna, your throne is going to be established forever. Right? So, so we've got this, this line of kings now. Okay? And so here, okay, why does that matter? Well, here's the issue. Priests were supposed to do priest stuff. Okay, They were a mediator between the people and God and the God and people. They were meant to advise people and help them judge difficult matters with the wisdom of God and to counsel them in the ways of godliness. They were the ones to offer sacrifices. And the high priest was the highest spiritual office in that system. Okay, So priests were supposed to do priest stuff. Kings were supposed to do king stuff. They were supposed to organize and lead the people and defend the kingdom. And you'll, if you go through your Bible, every time kings tried to do priest stuff, bad stuff always happened. God made very clear, these two offices don't blend. I have priests, they have a job. I have kings, they have a job. Okay? And so what we see in Jesus is a blending of these two offices because he is of the Davidic line. He is the king Messiah we are waiting for, but also... The author of Hebrews is now making this this argument that he's also sitting in that place of high priest. So now, uh uh-oh, that's that's looks like a problem. But that's that is part of what verse 12 is saying. If we're gonna have a change in the priesthood, if the order of Aaron was something that God established temporarily to accomplish something in a certain time frame, and what ultimately God was gonna do was to have his his eternal high priest of the order of Melchizedek, then there's gonna have to be a, a change to the law. And of course, the, the, the purpose of the law uh, was revealed to be different later, it, it, the, the, and he starts to talk about that as well, which we'll get into some more, right? The law could make nothing perfect. The law was really about letting us know there's a problem, but it didn't offer a permanent solution to the problem. That's why we needed one, and we needed a high priest that wasn't going to die every 80 or 90 years, and then it transfer on to a son who may or may not be a good high priest, He's building an argument for why Jesus is like, you should want Jesus to be the high priest, guys, because there's all these issues with this other system. It wasn't bad. God instituted it, but for a purpose in a time. And it it wasn't what was going to get the whole plan accomplished that we're really trying to do here, which is us and God forever. Okay? So... And here, Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a big wrench in here, because this is, <laughs> this is an indirect view right here, but I think it has to be mentioned at this juncture. Priest and king weren't the only offices of leadership in Israel. Anyone want to take a crack at what the third was? You had, you had kings, I almost said the one I'm <laughs> asking you about. You had kings and you had priests, you had one other office of authority in the Old Testament. What was it? You had prophets, didn't you? Okay, Now, prophets were not priests or kings, ever. Though sometimes kings would operate in the prophetic, like King David in the Psalms, for example. But there was a clear delineation between these offices. Because oftentimes, and you can kind of see something of, of the structure of our government represented in this, there was a check and balance between the priests and the kings and the prophets, right? Sometimes the prophets would pop up to the king and, and you know, most of the time you conceptualize a king is like, you don't come tell the king anything. The king tells you things, right? But even kings need someone that can tell them something. And so sometimes the prophets will show up and say, yo, king, sit down. Okay, <laughs> right? Because God established this other office of prophet. Now, <clears throat> the point is we have three different offices of leadership for God's people. They were not to be mixed Each one had a role and a purpose, and no one person was ever supposed to have the authority or responsibility of all three. Well, for those freaked out by the idea of Jesus as both king and priest, buckle up because he's a prophet as well. Jesus fulfilled all three offices. Well, why are you saying that? Think about it. What does a prophet do? speaks the word of God, right? Prophets uh, oftentimes did miracles to show the power of God, to not only remind God's people of his power, but also reveal his power to their enemies. Also, they would sometimes foretell the future, all right? So Jesus spent most of his time speaking the word of God, and there was many times he foretold what would happen. Uh, major one that comes to my mind is he told, told some guys, to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. They didn't know what he was talking about. He was talking about the temple of his own body. That when they destroyed him, when they killed him, put him in the ground, three days later he would rise up. And that's not the only time he said that. He said it even more plainly in, in other ways. But, uh, and, and Jesus did a couple of miracles too, didn't he? Just a couple. Right. All right. Now, so Jesus is, fulfills to the fullest extent the office of prophet, priest, and king did them all perfectly took those three offices that God had clearly put walls between for important reasons. They're all brought together in one Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, okay? Now, I know some of you might be struggling at this point in the sermon, and I get it, because I'm giving you a lot of information, but I want you to know, as a follower of Jesus, these are things you should know, because all of the information in God's Word does have application, I know it's not always readily apparent what the application is, but God is not sloppy with words. He doesn't have throwaway words in his scriptures. Okay? And so all of these things matter, and they all come together to tell the story of this, this redemptive arc that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. Okay? The, the Bible is not this fragmented set of moral stories that it's oftentimes taught to be. It is one coherent history of the creation of man, the fall of man, and God's plan to rescue man. And then also some forward-looking of what he's rescuing us to, which is eternity with him. All right, that's, that's really how this works, but it's, it's hard for us sometimes without some of these broader uh, ideas, to, as, as we're reading through, it's like the, the dots don't connect, but man, I'm trying to tell you something, when they start to, when you start to see the crimson thread of the gospel run from Genesis to Revelation, it changes so much the 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 supernatural nature of god's word it it, it begins to jump at you. you 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 start to get to the point where it's like oh yeah it's definitely not that some um some wise old sages sitting in the desert cook this thing up to trick people no man there's no way it's 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 not possible not when you start to see all that all that ties together and the intricacy of it okay so the question is, what what is the application of us knowing, right? Because I know that's. <laughs> I could see someone sitting here going, "Okay, bud, that's a lot of stuff. You told us, cool, but what do I? You know, I gotta live. I gotta leave here and live day to day, and that's that's what I'm I'm looking for something to help me live day to day. I got you. What is the application of us knowing all these Old Testament offices and that Jesus fulfilled them all? Honestly, what relevance does that have to my life today? Now I don't. I don't know that I always think that's the greatest way to come at the Bible, but I'm just granting that sometimes we do. And anytime you do, if you trust God to show you, he will. And and I'm about to to lay it out real clear here, okay? What is is the application of deciding that Jesus fulfilled all these offices? Well, here's a question for you. In whose image does Romans 8 say we are being conformed? Romans 8 says we're being conformed into someone's image. Who is it? Jesus, right? That was one of those ones that, like, if I went down to kids' class and asked that, they would have been a lot more confident than you. to Because they know 90% of the time if they say Jesus, it's the right answer. Or some variant of that. So I teed you up with a softball there. And I'm, I'm just, you know, let, let's, let's go ahead, swing at it. It's all right. It's all right. Jesus, Okay. Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Okay? All right. Keep that in mind. Now, here's a verse or two. If you don't understand everything we've talked about thus far, here's a verse or two you may not have known what to do with that could really take on some new meaning. I'm reading from Revelation starting in chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The point, the real point I'm here for is down a bit further, but I wanted to start there. Who is this writing to? This is writing to the seven churches in Asia and, and broadly to the church. So to us collectively. Okay? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's just all good stuff right there. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us into a kingdom, or some of your translations will say, he made us into kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If Jesus fulfilled the office of prophet, priest, and king, and we're being conformed into his image, then there's some application there for us. What does it mean for us to reflect that part of Christ's image? And I'm taking it even a step further by taking you to Revelation and showing you that it's said explicitly that what Jesus has done is made us into kings and priests to his God. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, we're not done yet. Ephesians 4.11 talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers as gifts to the church. As Gifts to help the church accomplish her mission. I'm going to say this, only thing I'm going to say about it today. There is a debate about the foretelling element of the prophetic gift today, okay? I don't have time to get into that. But the letter to the Corinthians, go check it out, is full of references to the gift of prophecy in the context of the the people of the church, okay? So Revelation said he's made us into kings and priests to our God, and clearly we have all of this discussion throughout the book of Corinthians, right? I mean, I I think of 1 Corinthians Uh, 13, if you have the gift of prophecy, this this is kind of saying it in a warning, but if you have the gift of prophecy, but you have not love, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. But there's further instruction as you move through 1 Corinthians, this idea, uh, Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and all through the book of 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, we have this this idea that the the gift of prophecy is something that's supposed to be in the church. Now again, remember, what what did prophets do? primarily they spoke the word of God. Oftentimes you think of, prophets, you think of prophets in the Old Testament, like we tend to key in on you know, Elijah at, at, at Mount Carmel defeating the, the prophets of Baal and like fireballs and stuff, right? I, look, I, that, that gets my attention too. There's nothing wrong with that. That's cool, right? We tend to think about the miracles. We tend to think about the fact when they, they foretell the future. But, but a main function of the prophets was to receive the word of the Lord and give it to the people. Okay. So the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is going to look somewhat different, at least in this way. We have the fullness of the Word of God now, and part of what prophecy looks like is to speak this to the people. So there is an element in which what I'm doing right now is, is working within the office and gift of prophecy. You understand? So it's, there, there is some difference to that. Now, further evidence, in, in case you're not convinced. 1 Peter 2.9, but you, speaking of the church... Are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Okay? I just grabbed a smattering. There's more that could be said about that. There's more places where the Word of God, in the New Testament particularly, hits us with this idea that part of what it looks like for us to be conformed into the image of Christ, part of what it looks like for us to be. The body of Christ is to reflect and walk in these offices that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Anybody intimidated yet? This should you should be like, uh oh, <laughs> okay, because now you're like, oh yeah, that's application. Now I need application of the application. Can you? I got you. I know. So what's the point? Why am I why am I belaboring this? Well, here's the point. Part of what this tells you: the church. Being called, in God's word, the body of Christ, the body of Christ is not just some cute analogy. It's not just a learning tool to help you understand something else. Now, does it go deeper than we can even understand? Yes, for sure it does. However, the idea that the scriptures call the church, the body of Christ, that's, that's not just an analogy. We are meant to reflect to the world and to one another Christ himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if, and if Jesus Christ was prophet, priest, and king, then that's going to affect how we see ourselves doing the thing that we are called to do and empowered to do by the Holy Spirit, to be representatives of Christ here in the earth. I'm going to remind you of Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. I'm trying to build the case here that we are to be image bearers of Christ. That's not that revolutionary of an idea. We're just now digging down probably below the surface of where we normally have or where people often do into what that means. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? What does it mean to bear that image out to one another and to the world? Part of what it means for us to be the body of Christ, to be the light of the world, is to understand that being conformed into the image of Christ means we are going to walk in those same types of anointing that that came in the office of prophet, priest, and king. We are supposed to be the body of Christ. We are supposed to be the image of Christ in the world. Confused yet? Startled? I hope it's not that confusing. It is startling. Something else to consider. None of us... Let me say this. Jesus was a prophet, priest, and king. We as the church are being conformed collectively into his image. We're meant to fill these roles by the power of the Holy Spirit in God's kingdom, not just someday, but right now. None of us individually will have the full strength of all three. But some of us are more gifted in kingly ways, some in priestly ways, and some with the boldness to be God's mouthpieces as prophets. This is part of why we need the church and solo Christianity is a farce. And we're, like I'm going to I'm just tapping this right now. For those of you that know your Bible, you know Hebrews 10 is just around the corner. So I'm going to get the tap dance all over this in just a bit. So come back. If if that already offended you, please come back just for the show. Just just we'll just see how mad we can get you. Okay? because I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, there's two barrels locked and loaded around all of that, but I'm just putting that on my back for later. I had such a hard time last week not getting into this, and now, now you know, he's setting up this high priest thing, which then leads into the idea that the new covenant's a better covenant, and I got to try to talk about all this without getting into that. Do you understand how hard that is? Anyways, I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. Okay. <clears throat> We can't fulfill this sacred duty of reflecting the image of Christ and being the light of the world on our own. You you flat out can't do it. And yet, even though none of us individually can perfectly fulfill all these roles, there is an element in which, by the Holy Spirit, we all operate in them in part. Why am I saying that? Okay. Jesus died, rose, ascended, sent us the Holy Spirit, who is God, right? To empower us now to be image bearers of Christ and be on this in this process of being continually conformed into the image of Christ. But part of what I want to shape for you today is that oftentimes when we read uh, Romans eight and we see that those whom those those whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, right? We we oftentimes individualize that, but if you go and you look at the context, you look at the way it reads, it's really all in the plural. There is an element, yes, of course, in which you and I are being conformed to the image of Christ. But really, the main thrust of the thing is we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And you and I will always fall woefully short of ever coming close to a good reflection and image on our own. Okay? However... <clears throat> since we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in this process of conforming us into the image of Christ, there, there is an element in which each of us, just give me a second, I'm going to work this all the way out, can, can walk in each of those gifts or reflect each of those offices, okay? How, how do I say that? And these are just quick examples I could come up with because I'm trying to do application here. Okay, so the office of priests, we talked about what they do. Can we not all pray and intercede both for believers and non-believers before God like the priest did? Any of us could do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can all offer ourselves as a sacrifice upon the altar and are actually commanded to in Romans 12, which we're going to read in just a second. Okay? So we can walk in that priestly calling in that way. Prophets, we can all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak the word of God to exhort and encourage and hold each other accountable. Can we not? Each of us can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was, part, that was a main element of the office of prophet, office of king. We are all called, are we not, to make disciples. And thus we take on the role of a leader in doing that. If you're making disciples, you are taking on the role of, of a leader, at least in some fashion. You're saying, hey, I'm following Jesus and I'm willing to help you also follow Jesus. Come with me. Are we not all called to make disciples? That's, that's the great commission. That one's pretty easy, right? And we also are all called to put on the armor of God and do battle against the forces of darkness. These are kingly things that we do by the anointing of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. So all of us, there are ways in which we walk in and operate in those different offices because now Jesus Jesus is not walking the earth fulfilling them perfectly, but he has left and has sent us the Holy Spirit and is calling us as his church to be his body here and now. To work in his kingdom for his purposes, to reflect his image to one another and to the world. Let's let's read Romans 12 to give a little bit more shape to this because I know I'm I'm out here a little bit kind of on a limb I'm not really but I'm, now we're gonna I'm gonna give you a Some more verses to to make us feel like we're coming back closer to the trunk here, okay? Romans 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That sounds like priestly stuff. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so don't be conformed to the world because we're being conformed to the image of Christ. For through the grace given to me, and remember, where am I at? I'm in Romans 12. So Paul had already said just a few chapters before, what's happening is you're being conformed into the image of his son, of God's son, by the power of the spirit. And Now he's giving you this warning against doing the opposite of that, being conformed to the world, all right? For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly, if prophecy in proportion to one's faith. Okay, this is another place where if you just want to say, um, in the New Testament... Uh, believers don't need to worry about prophecy. All, all of the office of anything that has to do with the prophetic is now is now done because Jesus died. Well, that's a problem because right here Paul's writing to New Testament churches saying, "If your gift is prophecy, then do it in proportion to your faith." Whatever. I'm not. I don't want to get dragged into that debate today because that's not the point. All right. It's pretty clear. We can talk about what it means, what prophecy means in the New Testament, but what it absolutely nobody disagrees that it means the, de- the declaration of God's word. At least it's at least that. Okay, there could be more, but just shelf that. So if prophecy, in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, what are we doing here? Right? He's saying that since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us should use them properly. So now we're going through what those gifts are prophecy, if service in the act of serving, the one who teaches in the act of teaching, the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You start to go and break those down, some of that stuff's priestly. Some of that stuff's kingly. Some of that stuff is more in in the realm of the office of prophet. But here we, we see that the body of Christ is called to all of it. And though what we see here is Paul saying, look, you should, let's, let's be, let's be totally upfront and honest about this reality. God wires us differently on purpose. I'm going to have strengths you don't have. You're going to have strengths I don't have. Part of the purpose of God in that is for us to come together and now be stronger for the work of service to God and and to the church, to the world, but also to help build one another up, right? Because I can learn from you. You can learn from me, right? And so that's that's part of what he's doing here. So, so of course, that's true. He says, if, "If, talks about a measure of faith, and there, so there is this idea that God wires us differently. Yes, so you, you're probably going to be stronger in one of these than the other, and it's going to be different for me. But though God makes each of us different with different gifts and strengths, okay, we are meant to join together for His glory. That's that is true, and that's part of how we. That's, that's part of how God is glorified. That's part of how He keeps us humble. Because in in one sense, at one level, he's kind of taken us back to the Old Testament situation where none of us are going to be perfectly strong and have all of the grace to operate perfectly in all of these gifts that were just listed, right? None of us are. There's going to be an ebb and flow depending on all different kinds of things and ultimately the sovereignty of God. But then he brings us together. So as the whole, we have all of these things in the measure that we need to accomplish what he's called us to do. Okay, that's, that's a picture of God's faithfulness. This group of believers, this ragtag band of misfits sitting in these pews right here that God has assembled together, he did that sovereignly. And he knew what you were good at and what you were good at, what you were bad at, what you were bad at. And he brought us together so that now we can cover for each other. So that now we put all of this together and look at what can be done when you put all of that together. God is glorified. His image is reflected not only in the house, but to the world. That's what he's doing, okay? But here's, yeah, amen, but now, hold on. (laughs) Because here's the real premise that I'm trying to work to here. Yes, there's strengths and weaknesses, and yes, the measure of faith and everything he said here, but there's an element in which every one of us is called to every one of these things. Let's look at the list again. He's saying, all right, do this in proportion to your faith. So what's the first thing? Serving, service. Is every follower of Jesus called to be a servant? You might be better at it than me, and that means I need to learn from you, and I'm really thankful you're there. But, but I'm also called to be a servant, right? Teaching. Are we not all called to teach? Now, maybe not specifically in the context and the way I'm doing it, but this is not the only way teaching happens. Teaching happens in our homes. Teaching happens one another amongst friends. Teaching happens in all kinds of contexts, and we are meant to teach the Word of God, every single one of us exhorting are we not all called to exhort and encourage yes giving you know some of you read romans 12 and you said oh look it's different gifts so if i'm good at one of those and not good at another i don't have to do it that's not what it means that's the bubble i'm bursting for you right now and i know for some of you like because we don't often think like this man we you know. And I'm not against these things, but I, you know, I, can hear, I can see some of you sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, I heard Romans 12, and I'm hearing what you're saying and all that. But look, man, I took a finder test, or I'm an Enneagram this, or whatever. And look, those can be really helpful tools for understanding a lot of things. I'm not, I'm not bashing on those things at all. I, I use them. But, but we need to run what we learn from those things through the grid of the Scripture, because what the world will often tell you, okay, the, the, the YouTube... You have a question? Oh, you, it was like that? I need to get you a hanky or something. I like that. Yeah, just as a general rule, if you have questions, do it afterwards. Because when I get rolling, if you start asking questions, I, I can't do two things at once. So, my, you know, I'm I'm at full capacity right here. This is it. I'm giving you everything I got. All right, so in case you were wondering, this is, yes, all of my gift is being poured out right now, hopefully for your benefit. Uh, but the... What we tend to do, you know, what your your YouTube uh, super entrepreneur will tell you is find your strengths, lean into your strengths, hone your strengths, sharpen your strengths, find out what you're good at and go hard at it. And I'm not even saying all of that is bad, but the Bible would also say, know what your strengths are, but that also is going to tell you what your weaknesses are. And that does need to be focused on. That does need to be addressed. That is something that brings me humbly to the feet of Jesus to say, Lord, this is what I need help with because I am called to serve and I'm called to give. I may not be that good at giving. I might be stingy. I might be Scrooge. I might be Grinchy in my heart, but I don't get to just say, oh, but, but, you know, my gift is leadership, not giving. So I'll let the givers do their, their part really well. And I'm just not going to worry about it. And, and the glorious thing is in the meantime, I've got brothers and sisters that are good at the things I'm not good at, so I can see a real-life living example of the blessing of walking in obedience in that thing. And I can come humbly and say, hey, I'm not that good at that. What, what is it, how do you think about this? What is, it, what is it that means for you you don't struggle? It seems like you have zero problem serving and being humble. Or it seems like you have zero problem stepping into the role of leadership by the power of the Holy Spirit but I really struggle with that. Talk to me. We can learn from one another. Teach one another, right? So it's giving. Then he says he talks about leading. We've already covered that. Mercy. Is every believer called to walk in mercy, or is that just a some people thing? Well, I'm not that good at that. I'm not that good at mercy, so I punch people in the face. The mercy people, they can do the mercy thing. That's that's not me. That's not my strength. That's That's not the way God wired me. you you better get humble and you better think about that different. I'm not saying we don't lean into our strengths. I'm not saying we don't ask God to help us even grow in those things. And and I'm not saying that the ways God wires us doesn't end up affecting some of how we focus our time in serving the, the kingdom of God. Of course it probably will. But that doesn't mean all the rest of these we just nod off on. We are all called to every bit of this, and we all need to do it according to the measure of faith God has granted us. And so what does that mean? That also means I can, I can come to God in humble recognition of the things I am good at here that I, I'm kind of naturally wired for, and I can come in recognition to him of the things I'm not, and I can pray in faith and ask God, Lord, help me to be more merciful. Lord, help me to not shy away from leadership opportunities when it's, it's going to be a chance for me to do what as you've called me to do and be a disciple maker. Help me, Lord, not to be so stingy, to be generous, whatever the thing is, right? To serve, to teach, all of it. So here's the question. We're, I'm, still trying to, I'm still giving you application of all that stuff I laid out to you before. We're still in the application phase. but So here's a big summary question, and that was, that was a lot of work for me to try to lay that out for you, and I know it was a lot to track with. I'm hoping that, that at least most of you were able to, but here's a bottom line question that will kind of bring it home, I think. I hope. What would change, all this considered, what would change if you thought yourself to be called as prophets, priests, and kings in the image of Christ? What would change in your life day to day if instead of all the ways you think about yourself right now, whatever primary inner monologue drives the way you see yourself, if you saw yourself the way God sees you, and if you legitimately today took on the idea, God has called and equipped me to walk In these offices of priest and prophet and king. I think for many of you, a lot would change. I think for all of us, there's a lot that could still change no matter to what degree we grasp these concepts. There's a whole lot of issues in this world that have to do with how we see ourselves, what lies we believe about ourselves. How many of the self-worth and self-doubt issues and lies of the enemy that hold us back in our day-to-day lives would be struck down if we could really see ourselves how God sees us? And, and, uh, you know, just part of the way I'm wired is a lot of times, no matter what I'm saying, it comes out as like a correction just because I'm intense. So I try, you know, I'm trying to chill out, man, I promise. Because it's not, and that's not what this is. This is not a correction. This is a hey. Child of God, lift your head up. Look up, child. This is the way your father sees you. This is what your father has called you to. This is what he, the anointing he wants you to walk in. The kind of incredible impact the priests of the Old Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament and the kings of the Old Testament have, that's how God wants his children rolling around in his kingdom Today. Being light in the world. This gives more shape to what it means to be light of the world. And I, I could still see some of you being like, okay, man, I don't know. Are you sure? Because I get this is big. I, I get, you know, some of you could be thinking, are you are you sure we're supposed to think like this? Because it is a big deal, man. This is a giant deal. And I and, and getting a revelation on this could change everything. If you haven't. But <clears throat> I get it's a lot of process. It's a lot to process. So I'm going to give you just one more thing to think about. I've done what I think I can do, taking you through the scriptures to, to to build this idea to the place where you can say, "Yeah, you know what? That that is scripturally sound." We're going to need God's help to figure out what it now means to to walk in it specifically. I've tried to also help guide you with that. But in case you're just still struggling with the idea itself, what I'm about to say holds not anywhere near the weight of what we just looked at in scripture, but. It is another example that might be helpful, and Jesus had no problem using examples that were helpful to get principles across. So, uh, would you know? Most of you, and, and there may be people in here today that you have not been a follower of Jesus very long, so this name won't mean anything to you. But if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you've probably heard the name C.S. Lewis, right? Most of you in here probably know who C.S. Lewis is, right? All right. It, if you haven't, and you're you're a new believer, I would encourage you to get your hands on. Just about anything C.S. Lewis wrote, it'll help you, particularly in these beginning stages of walking with the Lord. But I would say, my personal opinion, I, you know, I guess if, if you disagree, I have the microphone, so just don't say anything right now, but I think C.S. Lewis seemed to know what he was talking about when it came to a lot about God and his word, right? I'm not saying C.S. Lewis as some perfect gauge or measure or whatever, but the brother was, was on point with the vast majority of what I've ever seen of his material. Okay, and God clearly used him. I would say one of the most prolific Christian minds of the nineteenth century, twentieth century. Okay, so so one of his hallmark works is is the Chronicles of Narnia, and so I'm out I'm out on a limb in this way in this example. I'm assuming many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and with the Chronicles of Narnia, but I want to just ask you this question: If you're not, then I'm just going to say, if you're struggling to keep up with what I'm saying, and this will be an example, I'm I'm going to send you back around go look into some of Lewis's work if you haven't read the chronicles of narnia or seen the movies at least then you know it would it would be good to help with this idea but those of you who are familiar with it here's the question i have for you why do you think the sons and daughters of adam were kings and queens in narnia did you always just think that was just like a cool thing that lewis threw in there i mean the biggest criticism of lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is that his allegory is too plain sometimes, right? Some of some of the more hoity toity among us, you know, we like Tolkien better because, you know, it's it's a little more veiled, right? CS Lewis is a little bit on the nose, you know. When Natalie and I went and saw the Chronicles of Narnia movie, there was there was somebody 3 rows down from us and when when Aslan popped back up, I mean, there was there was a brother 3 rows down going, "Oh glory, Jesus!" in the movie theater. <laughs> so it's like it's not if you have any idea what the gospel is and you're you're taking in the Chronicles of Narnia you're like okay I can kind of see but but there is some stuff that is is a little higher level woven in there the very fact that the sons and daughters of Adam are kings and queens in Narnia and what happens when they go to Narnia they are always in the thick right in the middle of some battle with evil they are the ones coming to Help solve the problem. Now let's remember, they always need Aslan's help, don't they? They ain't doing it on their own. But there's a reason they're kings and queens and Aslan's using them to deal with the problems. You just think about that a while. All right? And like I said, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia or at least seen the movies, I'd highly recommend them. Um, Now, my wife would tell you that the first movie's pretty good, but the rest get a little sketchy as far as following the, the book. So if you'd like to have a, a long and or nerdy convo about that, hit her up, uh, because she's got very strong opinions and well-informed opinions about all of that. So she could help you out if, if you're trying to find your way when it comes to that. Those, those are, she's read those books a great many times, so... Uh, for, for which I'm thankful. I'm, it was, I'm sure, formative for her as a believer. So, okay, now we're in verses 15 through 19. That was a lot of work in two verses there. Oh, goodness, that took a minute, didn't it? All right, we don't, it's all right, we're going to make it. It's going to be okay. What time's the game tonight? Like eight? You guys are good, right? Right? Oh, yeah, I forgot the obligatory who day. There you go. All right. Yeah. Who do think going to survive this sermon? Those who had breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, now we're in verse 15. Let's, let's just look at this. He, uh, let's take verses 15 through 19 together. This is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, your priest forever, Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Big point that the author is making here. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Now again, we've got to remember, the author of Hebrews is dealing with people tempted to go back into the law. So sometimes it sounds like he's being really harsh on the law. Okay, It's useless. The law was not useless, period. The law had a purpose. It just wasn't to make anything perfect. The law, Paul said in Galatians, was a tutor to show us our need for Christ. And that's the problem. When you try to make the law do what it wasn't made to do, is that's when it becomes a problem, okay? So just keep that in mind when this guy's kind of railing on, it seems, the law and Moses and all that. It's not that those things were bad. Those things had a time and a place and a purpose in God's plan. But when you try to take them and make them do more than God meant for them to do, you end up in an issue, all right? Okay, so Uh, Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the author here is continuing making his case that Jesus is the better and perfect high priest they should have been looking for. All right? Uh, Verse 16 says, uh, This is not, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of indestructible life. So here's the deal. Look, Jesus' high priest position is not based on the fact that he was the eldest son of a high priest that died. That's what he's talking about, this physical requirement. Him becoming high priest is out of the fact that he has the power of an indestructible life. That's a nod to Christ's resurrection. Christ is the high priest we need because he can be high priest forever. Because he beat death. And so now what you have is not a priest that's going to last the lifespan of a man. You have a, priest, a high priest who's going to stand in his place interceding for you Forever. You understand the stability that brings to the situation. Again, the argument is Jesus is a better high priest than the Aaronic Order. You guys having a hard time with this transition. I'm trying to let you know, man, you're 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 staying away from something that's that's way better for you if you just think about it. That's really what we're hearing unpacked here. Okay, so the other issue with the heredity thing and it being the law of a physical requirement, there there you would have this, you should have this concern, you don't always get the eldest son. Is not always a great guy. The eldest son doesn't always have the character for the job. I'm thinking of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, right? Who God ended up making sure they both died on the same day in battle, because they, like so many others, the power and authority of the priesthood. Eli they, they made them both kind of co-high priests. That was weird itself, but whatever. But what we end up finding out is the authority. It's supposed to be primarily a responsibility and accountability, but they really focus on the authority of the priesthood. They start taking more of the offerings than they should. They start using that authority and 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 uh, praying on women, sleeping with women out of that authority. I mean, the temptation that comes along with the abuse of power apparently hasn't changed over several thousand years. Just drop that there. And so so you so you should okay. So if you're somebody that living by the Torah, like you. And in the time when, when this writer is writing this, this is, this is much later than Eli's sons. He's like, you guys know the high priest, they weren't always good. So you had this, you had this concern that because the, the way the thing was done was it was the eldest living son, you don't know who you're getting. Sure, you might get an Aaron, or you might get one of the other priests that, that served faithfully and did an awesome job, but you might get a Hophni and Phinehas too. You don't have that worry anymore with Jesus, this high priest, who is perfect, improved it, and and is anointed with this power of an indestructible life. We We don't have to worry about getting a bad one. He's a good one and he's forever. Okay? The law was not bad. It served to alert us to the distance between us and God because of our sin, but it had no power. This is verses 18 and 19. It had no power to bring us close to God in a permanent way. Did you hear that language? to bring us close. Think about the Old Testament. Think about the Torah. Think about Mount Sinai. Think about the tabernacle. So much of the law was about you can't come close. Stay back because God is holy and you are not. And if you put yourself in the sphere of this holiness, that's it. Not because God has to actively kill you, just because you can't stand in that kind of glory and holiness with your imperfection and not die. But think, think about all the language of the New Covenant. and This is part of what he's saying. This high priest isn't, isn't saying you got to stay back. This high priest is saying, come in here. More on that in just a minute. That gets a little bit into chapter 8 and why the New Covenant is better. It's very hard to talk about why Jesus as a high priest is better without getting into the New Covenant stuff, right? So, ah! All right, verse 20 and 21. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Again, back to the the oath made in Psalm 110. That's the reference there. Um, So we have this binding oath of perfect permanence versus not. And, And here's the author's argument. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want this? this oath of God that when when this this priest rises up in the order of Melchizedek, that's it. We're done. You don't need any more. I'm saying that by an oath. I'm establishing this one, and you're a priest forever. No more questions about, is the next one going to be good? Is the next one going to be bad? No instability, right? Again, so I'm trying to do the Jesus thing here and, and give you an example that hopefully makes sense. But all right, if I came to you and I offered you two different cars, the first car I said, all right, look, I can give you no guarantees. This car could break down at any time, all right? I'm going to offer you, I'm going to give you a free car today. You look, don't look that excited. Even if it's a car that breaks down all the time, that's a pretty cool deal, free car, right? So the first car, I say to you, look, I, I can't guarantee anything. You may not make it out of the parking lot with this car, but I'm going to give it to you. Or, now I just need you to use your imagination with me because this does not really exist. Or I offer you a car, And I can say to you, look, all you're ever going to have to do is drive this thing. This car literally will never, ever break down. I can guarantee it and promise it forever. It'll never break down. And you get to choose. Which car would you like? (laughs) Is anybody choosing car A? If you are, come see me afterwards. We have to just talk through this some more, okay? The choice should be clear. And this is a dumb example, but it does try to get at the principle. This is what the author's saying. You've got a priest that you know is perfect forever, and you guys want to go back to the Aaronic thing? No. You had no guarantees with that. The high priest could die any time. Could break down any time. Okay? A lot of instability there. This brings a stability to us that is eternal. It's really something that I, I'm so happy we can lean back into. Okay? Alright, verses 22 through 24. We're getting there. We're, we're almost there. Uh, <clears throat> so so much more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Mm. The former priests, on one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Okay, So they weren't priests forever because they died. Verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. There, there's some <clears throat> reiteration that happens here. But when you heat, see here, it says the guarantee of a better covenant. That word covenant is, is like testament, like last will and testament and so there's an element in which what we're seeing here is the point is the other high priests they couldn't guarantee anything because they couldn't make the people keep their end of the covenant i mean let's be honest they couldn't keep their end of the covenant because here's here's what it looked like right here's the covenant okay i'm i'm god so i'm going to dictate terms not no not me i'm i'm this is is what he said okay (laughs) God comes and says, okay, if you humans are faithful to your part, I'll be faithful to my part. Okay? How did that play out? Humans were never faithful to their part. The priests weren't faithful to their part. Nobody was. They jacked it up continually over and over in new, creative, and disgusting ways. This, this, is, why, this is why we needed a better high priest, because then Jesus, as a human... Covenant terms are still there. Jesus as a human comes and keeps his part. He does what we couldn't do from a covenantal perspective and now God can do all that he ever wanted to do and be faithful and not be unjust. And again, he's not going anywhere, right? This is something he has done and will continue to do forever to serve as high priest for us. But because Jesus did what none of us could do as the humans keeping up our end of the covenant, that's why Jesus had to be born of a human. Like if you've worked, if you struggled with the whole gospel thing, like, "What? this is so weird. Why did God have to become a human? I don't get it. This, I'm trying to get down into it for you. We needed a representative. We needed somebody that could keep our end of the bargain. And Jesus was the one that did it because we never were going to. And then priests also offered sacrifices, Right then Jesus offered the best and final sacrifice that would ever have to be offered himself. He put himself on the altar as the Lamb of God, okay? Now, I think the Grand Slam summary statement of this whole deal is really verse 25. And then the author kind of reiterates the whole argument again powerfully. So I want to read it in that way. So let's skip verse 25 for now because I really think that's his summary statement. We're going to pick up 26 through 28 and then read 25 after that, okay? So here we go. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Again, friends, what are we doing? This is why Jesus is so much better a high priest, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now read 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, This this is why, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom by supernatural power. Jesus is not serving in an earthly tabernacle. The whole reason that veil tore was to show everybody, we're done with that. You used to have to stay away, but now you get to come near through him because he now sits in the heavenly tabernacle. That's why we have no need for a tabernacle here because he's in the heavenly one. That was The, the earthly one was always supposed to be representing. It was always just pointing to what the plan was always going to be, which was for the Lamb of God to end up in the throne room making intercession for us forever, doing that high priestly duty forever. And it's not like he has to be up there begging God to, to be kind to us the whole thing is done. They are in agreement all that, has, all that was needed legally and in every other way for us to be able to stand in the presence of God, in the likeness of Christ. But because grace has been poured on us through faith, through him, He is now ever living, ever making intercession for us. He isn't going to die. His bonehead sons aren't going to take over and mess it up. It's never going to change. There's so many ways you would have had to be worried as an Old Testament Torah-following believer that this whole thing could go bad. Invading armies could come and take the tabernacle or take the Ark of the Covenant, and they did. I mean, the Philistines gave it back pretty quick because things went real bad for them when they tried to keep the Ark, but that's besides, I can't get into, good Lord, I can't get into that. There, when it comes when it comes to Christ's ability to save. When it comes to him performing his duty of high priest, which we need, that's a big part of this as well. Part of what the law taught us is you do need a high priest. You, you still do. I, I still do. We need a high priest. Everybody does. Everybody needs somebody to stand between us and a holy God. But thank God, you don't, you don't need a human to do it. You've got Christ as your high priest. And so you are now invited up the mountain. You are now invited in behind the curtain. You are invited into the presence of this perfect and holy God forever. And that's never going to change. And if you can't get happy about that, I don't know what, I don't know, I can't help you. (laughs) Jesus is a better high priest. And he presides over a far better covenant but we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Jesus, our perfect high priest, our eternal high priest, the one we always needed. We come in his name. We come by his authority. We come by the grace and mercy offered to us by faith in him alone. That's how right now I can stop and I can pray words towards heaven and believe they would even reach you at your throne. It's because of him and his perfect eternal intercession. Thank you, Lord, that you delight in this, that you delight in the fulfilling of your plan to remove the barrier between us and you. Thank you that you are not begrudgingly hearing this prayer. Thank you that you are not begrudgingly receiving our praise today, our offerings today, our giving today. None of this is something you're saying, oh, oh I, gotta, I guess I have to from these... Rotten children of mine, no you, no, you are changing us. You, by the power of your spirit, are conforming us. You're making us what we never could have been on our own. You are making us prophets, priests, and kings unto our God. You are making us a part of this great and incredible work of redemption that you are still doing. You are st- your plan is still unfolding. This is the age of the church. There is still a job to do. There is still good news to preach. And you've called each of us to do it. Lord, help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Help us stop believing the lies we so often believe that hold us back from operating in the fullness of what you have for us. And thank you, God, that our motivation for this is not just because we want to glorify you, though we do. It's not just to see your name made much of in the earth. It's also because, Lord, help us to be convinced of this. Walking in all that you've intended us to walk in is the only place we're actually going to find the joy that we're often scurrying about looking for in other lesser things. Our purpose is you. We were made for you. We got one shot. It's you, Lord. You're the only one. We need you. We love you. Thank you that by faith we can have you. And we do. We we honor you, Master. Thank you, Lord Jesus, my faithful high Priest. I honor you. I love you, Master. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org dot org